Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Welcome, everybody, to the talk this evening. Um, my name is Bradley Updike, and I'm a paleoceanographer, paleoclimatologist from the Research School of Earth Sciences here at ANU. <coughs> and about 15 years ago, Andrew Glickson showed up at my door. And I didn't really know Andrew at that point, but I knew of him. Andrew has a long history which continues to this day, of studying impact structures all across Australia. And in fact, he's probably one of the most accomplished at finding new impact structures in Australia and has been for decades. And he has a fantastic reputation for the field quality of the field work he does out in places like the Pilbara. And uh, so, Andrew showed up and he started asking me questions about paleoceanography, which is legitimate, because that's what I do. But I wasn't sure why. And then it rapidly became clear that Andrew was very, very concerned about the rising CO2 levels in the atmosphere that we were seeing. And he wanted to do something about it. And so to cut a long story short, um, Andrew has done a brilliant job of pulling together published data from people all over the world and trying to put scientific data from scientific papers into a format that he can put into a context, context to talk to an audience like yourself that aren't necessarily experts. And um, my criticism of Andrew, and he knows this, is that particularly 10, 15 years ago, when he first started doing this, he packed so much data into each diagram. And so I'm hoping that tonight, <laughs> the diagrams will be just a little bit simpler. So without any further ado, welcome Andrew, and I'm looking forward to the talk. Yeah, well, okay, thank you very much, uh, Brad. Uh, I'd like to, if possible, start with a moment of silence in the memory of uh, two great climate scientists who were not only brilliant in the field, but they were also prepared to take a stand on the issue. Uh, one was Michael, uh, um, Tony McMichael. One was Tony McMichael, who had passed away last year. And the other one is Michael Raupak, who passed away some months ago. These people were inspiration. And the very small community of climate scientists have now suffered badly by their loss. The next point I'd like to make is the connection between my field in early history of the Earth and climate science. 
early history of the Earth, asteroid and comet impact, and climate science. They are not unrelated. They are definitely related. And this is how I have arrived at this field. Why? Because comet and asteroid impacts, as well as volcanic eruptions, have caused massive climate changes in the history of the Earth. These were the periods at which the great mass extinctions have occurred. The oldest one we know from 580 million years ago and five other ones which follow. And I will be talking about them um, in this um, lecture. So without any further ado, I think that there is a connection and there are lessons to be studied from the history of the Earth and between what is happening right now uh, I, will, I will proceed. The Earth, as defined, as described by Carl Sagan, is unique. Even though we believe that there are well, millions of habitable um, planets in the universe, many of them, or most of them, or almost all of them, would be occupied by microbes. To have advanced life develop as on the Earth is considered by cosmologists quite unique, although we can't put a number on it. And what's even more unique is a species that appeared on the Earth, which has uh, decoded the basic laws of nature, the basic laws of physics, and has learned to study its own origin and the origin of the Earth itself. As uh, symbolized by the um, symbol at the top left of the diagram by John Wheeler. For we are the intelligent eyes at which the universe looks at itself. So what is unique about the Earth? What is it which has allowed advanced life and finally advanced mammals to have uh, flourished? Well, in one word, the answer is water. Without water, I don't know of any form of life which can exist. Even a microbial life at the black chimneys at the bottom of the oceans need water, which they uh, split uh, and use the oxygen from the water molecules to oxidize sulfur and metal and other components, which is a way to derive energy. So without water, there is no life. And there is some water and some carbon dioxide, some frozen carbon dioxide on both Mars and even the Moon. But it's very little and it's frozen. And while it's not impossible that it contains some microbes, because of the lack of atmosphere, life has not flourished there any further. So Earth occurs intermediary, both in space and in its conditions, is intermediary between um, between Mars on the one hand and Venus on the other hand. Mars being a frozen desert and Venus being a boiling type of hell. Well, atmosphere occupied by sulfur dioxide and carbon dioxide. And Mars has no atmosphere, very little. And it is, once again, the development or the presence of water which has allowed early life to form, and subsequently the early DNA. Here we are on this slide, you can see stromatolites uh, from the Pilbara, they are 3.5, almost 3.5 billion years old, and they are there. 
I'm looking forward to visit them again in a few weeks' time. And there are nanobes, which are somewhere in a boundary between viruses and between bacteria. Tiny micron-sized forms of life. So where does water come from? Well, there is a space cult that suggests that everything on Earth, whether it's water, whether it's life, and even um, human beings have arrived from space. To me, it's a, not a scientific theory. It's based in ideology. That as if space is the origin of all, that, uh, all the wonders of the Earth. Well, there are a few limits to the theory. One of them is deuterium. Uh, comets include deuterium. The Earth's water includes very little or none. So the water of the Earth have arrived, we believe now, mostly from the Earth's mantle, deep in the Earth, 400, 600 kilometer, low velocity zones, which have up to 1% water or something like that. Now the Earth, the Earth is like uh, living beings, it's homeostatic. Some people have even attached some spiritual meaning to that, but I will not talk about that. This is not the angle I'm looking for. But the Earth is homeostatic in terms of the maintenance of conditions which allow life. And this diagram, what we're looking at, is um, are the temperature of the atmosphere as we learn them from isotopes, oxygen isotopes, carbon isotopes, and also measurements of sediments from about 4.5 billion years ago, where we already have some zircons, uh, which contain uh, oxygen isotopes and contain some water. We know from uh, these isotopic measurements that the Earth's atmosphere has um, been approximately right from the start to these days in this region, somewhere between maybe 15 and 25 degrees. How come? because the sun has actually warmed up by some 30%. That's the red line. So how come the Earth is not warmed? In fact, in a moment, I'll show you some slides which show that the Earth has cooled rather than warmed. So this 30% of solar luminosity, which has increased with time since the sun is growing into a red giant eventually, has not warmed the Earth the Earth has maintained more or less constant or near constant temperature. The answer is carbon dioxide, but not only carbon dioxide. Early in the history of the Earth, the atmosphere had very little oxygen, so there were other carbon species. There was methane and carbon monoxide. Greenhouse gases in short, also nitrogen. They formed the blanket which kept the Earth in more or less homeostatic condition. And this allowed life, this allowed the oceans to remain because otherwise the ocean would have been totally frozen or evaporated. We have evidence, which I'll show you in the next slide, that in fact the early oceans were very warm but not as warm as they would boil. Uh, the early oceans, according to studies of um, um, fluid inclusions in charts, 
by Don Lowe and other people from Stanford University. Uh, has been as warm as 60 or they say even more degrees Celsius. Well, other people will question it, but the evidence is not bad. But it never boiled. What happened is that as the um, mountain ranges have started to form according to plate tectonic theory or plate tectonic evidence, a lot of the carbon dioxide which accumulated in the atmosphere originally from volcanoes, from volcanic eruptions uh, particularly, and released from the rocks into the atmosphere. As mountains formed, they started to sequester carbon dioxide. The weathering of rock incorporates uh, components from the atmosphere. Um, the carbon dioxide combines with calcium it forms uh, carbonates, which are deposited in the oceans as limestones. This process, which took well, many hundreds of millions of years, also occurred at times quite abruptly. Uh, for example, the Himalaya, when they rose uh, during or early in the Eocene, uh, the weathering of the Himalaya has resulted in re relatively rapid sequestration of carbon dioxide. So it's this balance between solar uh, luminosity and radiation, and on the one hand, and between the greenhouse gas blanket of the Earth, which has controlled the atmosphere, the temperature of the atmosphere, which in turn controls the temperature of the oceans, which in turn controlled life until life has emerged out of the oceans. Now, I'd like to say a few words about the interaction between the atmosphere and life. Until about um, perhaps uh, 650 or so million years ago, life was confined to the oceans. So in fact, the water formed the atmosphere of the Earth, or the atmosphere for living beings, for which we have evidence, as I said before, as far as 3.5 billion years ago. But it's the chemical processes of life forms which started to increasingly affect the composition of the atmosphere, as well as vice versa. Life and the atmosphere are intertwined. We can describe the atmosphere as the lungs of the biosphere. And this lesson has not been learned even to today by people who are making decisions. The atmosphere, 10 kilometers at most, thick, 10 kilometer thick, constitute the lungs of the biosphere. So early in the history of the Earth, when there was very little or no oxygen in the atmosphere, reactions by bacteria, microbes, such as the breakdown of water, uh, oxidation of sulfur or uh, iron sulfide, has released hydrogen into the atmosphere. This is only one example of the reaction. There were numerous reactions. These microbes penetrated the metallic minerals and oxidized the uh, iron, the nickel, the chromium. They were very clever, but they couldn't do it without water. So here we are. Here's another reaction of um, sulfide, iron sulfide, oxygen, and water. And what do we get? We get hydrogen, which goes straight into the atmosphere. Very little oxygen was released. 
much of the hydrogen would be released from the Earth because it's so light, it will, it will escape from the gravity field of the Earth. Okay, the other component released by microbial, uh, what's called metagenesis, using hydrogen from the breakdown of water, will be, for example, a um, combination of reaction between hydrogen and carbon dioxide, or hydrogen and organic molecules, which will release methane. And methane is toxic to life. Methane is at least 70 times the greenhouse effect um, of uh, carbon dioxide. The early atmosphere, not continuously, but in phases, in cycles, had been rich and rich in methane. Not an atmosphere which mammals could possibly live in and breathe. It is photosynthesis. Once photosynthesis has emerged in the oceans or the shallow seas, as far back as 3.5 billion years ago, gradually, slowly, and then abruptly, oxygen started to accumulate in the atmosphere. The earliest uh, photosynthesis we know are stomatolites of that age, but they didn't release very much oxygen. They had to release some because we know that they are that they were photosynthesizing from the fact that they are what's called heliotropic, they grow towards the sun in shallow water. It is the cycles which occurred early in the history of the Earth have resulted at one stage of more than one stage in glaciations. This was when greenhouse gases were sequestered by mountain ranges, which existed on and off. And it's during this period when carbon dioxide somewhat decreased, even though it was still very high, that uh, we have evidence for tillites, for uh, glaciers in several parts of the Earth. The strong ones were 2.4 billion years ago and 600,000 years ago, million years ago. So it's only, it's mainly from the time that um, photosynthesizing um, plants appeared on the continent, which is in the Silurian 420 million years ago, that um, oxygen started to um, be emitted in a serious way, reaching up extreme level. Oxygen, due to land photosynthesis of ferns and so on, cicads, have reached at one stage some 35%. This was not necessarily good news for organisms because with oxygen, atmospheric oxygen of this level, even wet forests can ignite by lightning. We always had lightning. And um, when oxygen levels rose to this level, some stages in the Carboniferous and Permian, forests would ignite by lightning. And that's the time that we find that the thick carbon, thick coal deposits have been formed. The coal deposits represent the decay of vegetation, but they also represent the burning of vegetation. We found a lot of uh, found components in the coal, which tells, tell us that they have been the residues of major fires right through the period of the Paleozoic. So the effect of whether it's of hydrogen, of methane, or oxygen can go as far as life is concerned in opposite ways. It can enhance life, it is produced by life, but it, it, it can also extinguish life. 
and life have been extinguished by some of these events. For example, it's thought that the greatest mass extinction in the history of the Earth uh, on the um, Permian-Triassic boundary 250 million years ago was caused by um, release of uh, uh, hydrogen sulfide. That has not been, this has not been proven, but uh, it's been suggested by Peter Ward and other people, and the idea has some merit. Uh, due to volcanism, which enriched the atmosphere in carbon dioxide, but then due to the activity of reducing bacteria, which released um, hydrogen sulfide. Well, this little introduction, or more than introduction, sort of leads us to what's happening in the present time. And we know what we are emitting, and we know the level which, to which we are emitting it. And we know now from paleoclimate science what happened to the atmosphere and to the biosphere when uh, certain components were emitted at very high rate. At present time, we get organic material being oxidized and releasing carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. I'll talk about it uh, in a little while. Okay, so let's go back to the good old times when um, microbes, the chemobacteria we call them, uh, we think that these were probably the earliest or some of the earliest life forms, lived uh, on the bottom of the oceans where um, sulfur dioxide and other components, uh, methane and hydrogen sulfide and so on, have been emitted uh, in fumaroles from volcanic vents. On the right-hand side of the uh, diagram, you see the tube worms, which are grazing on the microbes. So here we have the food chain, the complete food chain totally separated from the atmosphere, uh, mostly under deep water, reducing environment, very little oxygen, and not receiving any solar irradiation. It's a deep sunken world which still exists. And we have evidence in the rocks that uh, such environments or similar type of environments have existed on and off right through the ages. One of them are what we call banded iron formations. Banded iron formations uh, dominate in the Pilbara. That's where uh, we mine iron uh, oxide, hematite and magnetite. You see an example here in Dale's Gorge at the top, and below you see an example of a magnetite uh, iron oxide a unit from Izua in Greenland, where some of the oldest bended iron formations have been found that are 3.8 or so billion years old. How did they form? Under the uh, oxygen pool or non-oxygenated um, atmosphere, which existed um, at least until about 2.4 billion years ago, iron oxide, ferrous oxide, was soluble, same as calcium oxide is soluble now. And it has been deposited on the seafloor uh, either by effect of the sun, which oxidized the ferrous to ferric iron, or and by activity of bacteria, which have oxidized the iron into ferric iron, which is not soluble. That's essentially the theories which underlie the formations of uh, bended iron formations. I just mentioned the age of 2.4 billion years ago. 
we know from sulfoisotopes that this was the stage at which, um, uh, before which we find that uh, sulfur 33 to sulfur 32 ratio is high, and which means that uh, sulfur was um, uh, converted uh, by uh, cosmic radiation and uh, in, um, ultraviolet radiation as well as cosmic radiation. So before, before uh, about 2.4 billion years ago, we have a spread of um, sulfur isotopes which tell us that there was very little oxygen. Because had there been oxygen, it would have formed an ozone layer, which would have uh, partly uh, prevented, partly ameliorated the effect of cosmic radiation and ultraviolet radiation. Following this age of 2.4, we have this uh, linear constant array which tells us that oxygen was already more prevalent and we think that this is thanks to the proliferation of algae in the uh, early, early oceans. <coughs> so here we are, you can see in this diagram how there is a sudden rise of oxygen in here. And there is a second stage, and I, had to have, I have to add, this was a glacial period. At about 2.4 to 2.5, uh, we have tillites, and the uh, relation between the glacial period and between the algae is quite clear. A cold water will contain more oxygen and nutrients. Cold water can dissolve nutrients and contain uh, oxygen to the extent that it existed, which allowed algae to proliferate and in turn release more oxygen. Warm water, tropical, wa tropical water, acts the other way around. So this was one glacial period. We can almost say that glacial periods are, have enhanced life in the oceans anyway. Then there is a second one. There is a second one here, which is approximately 0.6 to 0.7 a billion years ago. Once again, similar thing. That's when we had glacials, that's where oxygen has risen to present day levels, although later on it has risen even further than that. This is a period that complex life has appeared. Once again, the oxygen was able to uh, dissolve nutrients and oxygen in the oceans and life has prospered. This is where the first, very close to that, it's uh, uh, 54, 540 million years ago, uh, complex life, uh, multicellular life have appeared. Again, probably thanks to the cold ocean water and the increase in oxygen, which are intertwined with the appearance of life. But proteins, the formation of proteins requires oxygen. So apart from water being, if you like, to have the key to life on Earth, oxygen became the key for complex life on Earth. So we have to thank photosynthesis for the fact that we are here. Here is the basic relationships of photosynthesis, basic um, equation, carbon dioxide, water, and a photon from solar radiation, forming glucose and releasing oxygen, something you all know, which leads to complex life, uh, which include lungs. 
Here are some uh, pictures from the uh, Pilbara, from the Archean rocks, which are up to 3.5 billion years ago. Stomatolites, which we're already photosynthesizing. This one's at 3.4, this is, is 2.7 billion. And here is a giant stomatolite, which is about, about 2.6 billion years old. So we're talking about the glaciers, and how do we know that they were glaciers? Well, apart from oxygen isotopes, which are not always reliable because they can be altered by secondary events, we have sediments which contain tillites. Tillites are sediments which are very fine grain from wind-blown uh, glacial dust, but also contain these large blocks like this. And we have rock uh, platforms which have striations of large glaciers on them. The complex life, which appeared at that stage, at about 0 .63, uh, 635 million years ago, is represented here by Eddie Akara from uh, the Flinders Ranges, already complex life form. These were jellyfish. The next important stage, and this was a stage very closely after that complex DNA molecules have emerged. Uh, the next uh, major um, transition, which I mentioned, the appearance of plants on the Earth is represented here by these plants. It's called Cooksonia, this particular one. And the history since the um, emergence of um, plants on the Earth, and even going back uh, since the um, development of proteins, of multicellular organisms, is represented in this diagram. So we're looking here at atmospheric carbon dioxide, see up to 8,000 parts per million. And we're looking at the, ice, at the ice ages, like this one in the Carboniferous Permian, where levels of oxygen, sorry, of the carbon dioxide drop to almost zero. Well, there were probably a few hundred or so. And then back again in the um, late Paleozoic and the early uh, Mesozoic. So what do these green points represent? Well, is it the late Devonian? the Permian-Triassic boundary, the late Triassic, late Jurassic, and the Cretaceous tertiary. What do they represent? They represent abrupt and extreme rise in carbon dioxide in episodes, which are represented by the green, the green um, triangles, uh, green diamonds. What happened during the stages? The stages? Almost each one of them was accompanied, uh, was marked by asteroid impacts which, like I said before, that's how I, I came to uh, look at paleoclimate. And these are also the period of the major, the big five mass extinctions on the Earth, an extreme rise in carbon dioxide. No comment required. These uh, blue lines here um, represent the major glaciations, which I've just been talking about that the latitude to which they which have reached. Periods of high um, carbon dioxide levels, like here and here, were also period of extreme turbulence. The higher the energy, 
in the atmosphere and the oceans, the greater the turbulence. There's no way out of it. Extreme weather events. And it's no wonder that uh, life had to adjust to this extreme turbulence. There are different ways in which it adjusted. Some organisms had to live underground, such as the early mammals, and other ones developed very large proportions. Also for other reasons, but one of the reasons would be the turbulence. The atmospheric turbulence. And what happened with oxygen? As I mentioned before, there were periods during which um, carbon dioxide was sequestered strongly by plants and also by weathering. But this period also, there were also cycles of oxygen enrichment and depletion. And it is during the ice ages where at low latitudes um, flora has flourished, the ferns and the cycads in the Carboniferous flourished to the extent that they have released massive amounts of oxygen to the atmosphere. And here is an example, the Carboniferous Permian periods of uh, flourishing of life, but consequently also uh, strong fires. So you get the tropical periods here of low oxygen, and you get the glacial periods of high oxygen, if you like. And now, uh, late in the Cenozoic, Paleocene, Oligocene, uh, we once again have the flourishing of um, vegetation and we once again have quite high oxygen levels. The factors underlying these climatic changes are not restricted to plants and organisms, not at all. Uh, underlying all of these processes were major tectonic, orogenic tectonic processes the rise of mountain ranges, the increase and decrease in the proportion of continents to the oceans. And these are represented in this diagram by a number of uh, events with time. Here we're looking from 70 million years ago to the present. And uh, in the um, early Eocene, which Brad is studying, uh, we have a sharp decline in the um, in temperatures decline in the level of carbon dioxide, and which has brought about the upper Cenozoic, the present areas on which we are living. But even before then, we had short abrupt episodes, and this one that I'm pointing here, called PATM, is a very important one. The reason it is important is because um, this was a bona fide greenstone or greenhouse event. Uh, how do we know it? Well, from carbon isotopes and so on, we know that the atmosphere has been enriched in methane at that stage. The underlying reason for this increase uh, is still contentional, but we know that temperatures, <coughs> atmospheric temperature and so on, have risen abruptly by four or five degrees, and there has been an extinction. Not as big as that extinction, but there has been an extinction. This is the period that the, um, the monkeys have appeared, for example. And had it not been for that effect, and had the monkeys not appeared, we, we would not have been here listening to this lecture, or rather what passes for it. Uh, we have this decrease. It's a very slow decrease, and it's considered to be, by people like Radiman and other ones, 
directly related to the weathering of uh, high mountain ranges, the Himalaya, the Alps, the Andes, and so on. From that time onwards, we have not a stability, but it's a relative stability of um, uh, conditions which were governed by, governed by the existence of the Antarctic ice sheet. The Antarctic ice sheet is formed here by abrupt rapid drop in carbon dioxide and temperature. And once it formed, conditions on the Earth have more or less stabilized, although it still reached four degrees above present levels uh, in the Oligocene and Miocene here and here. But from here onwards, from the mid-Miocene onwards, once again, we have an extreme, a very rapid decline in temperature and carbon dioxide, probably due to further rise of the Himalaya, Himalayan plateau. And human Homo sapiens has only appeared about here. Well, not Homo sapiens, sorry, the genus Homo has only appeared approximately two million years ago. So it's a species, ours is a species which is uniquely adjusted to conditions of deep glacial times. Glacial, interglacial, even the interglacial we have, and we are living, we are living in the interglacial, is a relatively very cold uh, period, uh, era in the history of the Earth, when compared with previous periods in which we had temperatures five and more degrees higher and thousands of parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So this is a sketch of the evolution of the um, atmosphere um, um, as driven by tectonic, plate tectonics event and the form, formation of mountains. This is the event that I was talking about, the um, Paleocene-Eocene boundary event, the extreme rise in uh, temperature uh, represented by uh, oxygen isotopes, the extreme uh, decrease in carbon-13, uh, representing accumulation of uh, biological debris, and a decrease in carbonate, representing the acidification of the oceans. So where are we? Here we're starting to descend. I mean, the genus Homo, as I just mentioned, is starting to descend or emerge, I should say, with the accentuation of the glacial interglacial periods. Here we are in the glacial interglacial periods of the Pleistocene and descending from the Pliocene, which is before 2.6 million years ago, descending from the apes, here we are. So we are creatures of the deepest ice age, uh, possibly since the Carboniferous Permian. We are adjusted to it biologically. Our breathing mechanisms, respiration, is adjusted to this condition. Rise the temperature of a certain degree, and, and we cannot quite continue. These are the Milankovitch cycle of the glacial interglacial cycles, which are really a key for understanding what is happening at the present time. They are driven by uh, solar cycles of approximately 100,000 uh, years long, uh, plus minus 10 or 20. Uh, once a, um, the Earth is oriented towards the sun, uh, further from the sun at particular angles, it receives less radiation as it orbits around the sun in the long term, 
long term, meaning about 100,000 years, it receives less radiation and uh, we are in an ice age. But when the Earth is positioned closer to the Sun, again, approximately every 100,000 years, although there are shorter term cycles as well, then it receives a massive dose of radiation which starts a major feedback effect. It's not so much the solar radiation, uh, it's the feedback effect from the glacial caps and from the oceans, which, is result, which results in the transition, pretty rapid transition in geological terms, from the glacial periods, like here, during glacial terminations, where temperatures once again rise by, average temperatures rise by about five degrees, within maybe two, three, or four thousand years. It is a very rapid rise of warming which leads to an interglacial period in terms of the geology, geological history of the Earth. But in our times, we are rising an order of magnitude faster than that. So here is the last uh, um, rise from the interglacial, the last uh, glacial termination. And something else is happening here which is important. It's important, it's called the stadial. Stadial is a rapid decline, a sudden decline from temperature peak in the atmosphere and the oceans due to the melting of the big ice sheets. The big ice sheets release cold water to the oceans uh, and the cold water uh, in the North Atlantic, North and Central Atlantic, will retard the thermohaline, the Atlantic thermohaline flow. It's the, Antarctic, it's the Atlantic thermohaline flow which provides warm water and keeps uh, from the Gulf of Mexico and so on, which keeps Europe and uh, Northeast America warm. If and when there is a stadial due to cold melt water from melting glaciers flowing into the Atlantic, and similar things happening in other oceans, uh, there will be a sudden collapse and we will have a little ice age. Uh, here is a little ice age. Well, that's called the youngest dryas, based on a flower which existed, which grew during the time. And this is very relevant to future projections of current climate trends. Because we are warming at fast rate, as I'll show in a second, and we could be reaching a similar stadium. There have been other uh, cycles, solar cycles, uh, during the last glacial age, which are shown here, the gold called Danska Ochka. But because of lack of time, I will not talk about them too much. They've been very important. They've been very fast. They occurred within <coughs> perhaps 100 years or so, in this case, as you can see here. Again, solar cycle creating feedbacks, amplifying feedbacks from the oceans and from the, from the ice. <coughs> and now that we're coming to a more recent time, I'm looking at the watch and I realize I have to move pretty quickly through it. Uh, these are the stadials during the last uh, several um, interglacial periods. Um, that's the last one. Here is the stadial, sudden, sudden decline in temperature. Here are other ones, once again, following um, peak temperatures, sudden decline in temperature, and here, and here, and here. So projections which we see for the next, perhaps uh, for this century and for the next few centuries, by the IPCC have not been able, or models have not been able to determine the time and the magnitude of such a study. But 
looking at the history of the atmosphere and the oceans, a study is bound to occur at some point, but we don't know when. When studials occur, and also when reverse warming uh, event occurs, from ice cores in Greenland, they can occur extremely fast. Why? Because uh, slow trends uh, reach um, a tipping point, irreversible points, shifts in the state of the atmosphere, which you can see here. This diagram is based on Greenland cores, and um, it shows deuterium stands for um, represented temperature. And you can see the changes have taken place here within three years. That's all. And here, within one year. Why? Because once ice starts to melt, we get what's called the, um, the ice reversal, ice water reversal. Thin films of water form on the ice. They absorb infrared. They melt more ice. Or the ocean works into the ice laterally. And once again, the same happens. It doesn't take long for a study to take place, sudden cooling. But the same is with, war with warming. <coughs> so the Holocene, uh, since about approximately um, 10,000 years ago, is an anomaly in the history of the um, Blastocene of the last uh, two or so million years. Why? Because it's particularly stable. There has been one previous. Uh, stable period, but at that stage, humans were not very far developed. But the origin of civilization, of farming, agriculture, civilization has been entirely and critically dependent on the stabilization of the climate from about eight or 7,000 years ago. It's that short. This stabilization has now come to an end uh, due to the uh, release, annual release of some 9 billion tons of carbon uh, since about the, the Industrial Revolution or Industrial Age, which is approximately 200 years ago. The composition of the atmosphere has changed drastically. Uh, the uh, level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has risen by 40% over 200 years. It's a change which is more rapid than any change that we can measure in the geological record. And with the change, as you can see, comes the rise in temperature, which is now on the continent, the average rise in, continent, in uh, temperature on the continent is 1.5 degrees Celsius. In the oceans, it's less, about 0.9. But uh, we've also released sulfur dioxide along with the burning combustion of um, fossil fuel, and this sulfur dioxide forms a blanket, it forms a mask. Uh, it's an aerosol which cools the, air or cools the airs, relatively cools the airs by approximately 0 0.7, 0 0.8, 0 0.9 degrees Celsius. So had it not been for these aerosols, we would have now been very close to two degrees above pre-industrial temperatures. We are now, according to this diagram from Mauna Loa at 403, parts per million carbon dioxide and rising at well above two parts per million per year. Again, a rise rate which has not been seen before, not from our measurements anyway. Um, the so-called stabilization of um, 
global warming would have been nice. Wish it was true, what the skeptics are saying. But when you look at this average, and these people have not learned what an average means, it seems. They're only looking every time temperature drops. They say, oh, the world is cooling. But unfortunately, the average keeps on rising. As you can see in this diagram from 1970 to 2015. Unfortunately, uh, there is no stabilization in temperature of the Earth because now, partly due to the sulfur aerosols, which relatively cool the Earth by maybe 0.7 degrees, but they don't cool the Earth, but they prevent further warming. Uh, a lot of the heat is going into the ocean. As you can see, at 100 meters depth, you get the rise of 0.3 mean temperature anomaly, and below you see what's happening further down. Ocean temperatures keep rising, and there result is result in melting of the large ice sheets. I was talking about the rate at which these processes are going on. Um, as you can see here, if you're looking at the previous uh, geological period since the Antarctic ice sheet has formed, you can see that they are relatively low. The changes in carbon dioxide and temperature, which you can see on the diagram, is relatively slow. We come to the um, glacier interglacial period, and the changes are a bit faster. But when we come into our times, recent historical times, the changes are extreme. Carbon dioxide now is two to three parts per million per year. And between 2012 to 2013, the rise was almost three parts per million per year. There was one period at which these changes were very fast, and these are during the last uh, glacial, the so-called Dansker-Ochgar cycles, driven by the sun. The result of uh, warming, inevitably, as I mentioned before, is a rise in energy, turbulence, and energy of the, especially in the oceans, but the ocean continent, as you can see here from the increase since 1980 to 2008 in extreme weather events, as monitored by the Munich Insurance Company. Consequently, inevitably, the big ice sheets are melting, you can see here, both in Greenland and in Antarctic, and the melting from these curves could even be accelerating as sea level rise. It's still an early stage for sea level rise, but if sea level rise continues, uh, we're going to end up with a situation like this. The equilibrium sea level rise for our current temperature conditions would be very similar to that which happened, occurred in the Pliocene. Pliocene, which is before 2.6 million years ago, temperatures were about between 2 and 3 degrees warmer than they were in pre-industrial times, and sea level were 25 meters uh, higher than now. Uh, consequently, the large river valleys, where much of the agriculture is cultivated, or grows, crops grow, and the deltas and coastal plains will be inundated with salt water. It's not very good news, and I don't feel right about communicating it, even though I'm not the only one, of course. But it's not the news I wish to have communicated, but we have no alternative. Science is evidence-based, and it's the duty of scientists to communicate this kind of evidence and development. 
So having said that, the next one is that because carbon dioxide has got a long atmosphere residence time, longevity, long longevity, the level of carbon dioxide that we are reaching now will be maintained in the atmosphere for periods on the scale of thousands to tens of thousands of years, which is shown here in this diagrams of paper by Solomon and others. The projection, climate projection by the IPCC have mostly portrayed linear trajectories. Now, of course, the climate scientists that have written this report know extremely very well that the atmosphere does not behave in linear ways. However, they've taken averages. And averages is a problem because it portrays, this average projection portray graphs like this of um, temperature increase. But what we see is increased variability. From early in the century, we see an increased variability, which is what would follow high temperature and higher turbulence in the atmosphere, inevitably. So the IPCC projections, I think, have perhaps inadvertently misled the policy makers. Again, I was talking about the study, which occurred right through the um, glacial, interglacial history. The IPCC has not been able to model uh, the time and the magnitude of the study, so they just left it. And once again, this might be misleading to people who are thinking of worrying about the future. We don't know when such a tipping point will occur. We actually don't know. But that it's bound to occur is implied by a study of the history of the climate. What would happen? People talk about tipping points. We don't know exactly what tipping points are except for when we look past into the history of the atmosphere. When we look at the future, uh, people um, like some of the German scientists, Lenten and Schellenhuber, have come up with a series of events. Each one of them represents a shift, a regional shift in events. But whether synergy will uh, combine these events into something bigger or not, again, we simply do not know. So these events include, uh, well, that the Atlantic thermohaline circulation, which I was talking about. Uh, El Nino could change. There was very little El Nino in the Pliocene. It has developed uh, through the Pleistocene due to the polarization, polarity of temperatures in the East and West Pacific. The monsoon would be affected. It could be more extreme monsoon, or in some cases it could um, disappear altogether. There are any number of scenarios for the future, and we cannot decide and determine them with accuracy. People are asking climate scientists to give them dates and magnitude, temperature, and so on. They cannot be modeled. The Earth, the earth is too complex for that. However, when you look at those models which can be done, and when you look at the history of the climate, it looks worrying. I don't know why this doesn't work now. Um, I'm almost getting to an end. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, so the future. The title of this talk was about the atmosphere, past, present, and future. What about the future? It has been modeled. 
but only in broad brush terms. As you can see from this model, the next ice age, which was due to occur approximately, uh, approximately in, this does not work for me. Is something I'm supposed to do? It's one, one back from that. Yeah, okay. The next ice age, <coughs> which was due to occur about here, within perhaps 20,000 or so years, is now um, thought to be delayed by another 20 or 30,000 years, and as a result of the long residence, long atmosphere residence time of carbon dioxide. Not that an ice age would have enhanced uh, agriculture and civilization, it would not at all. On the contrary, ice age would be a disaster. But a wise civilization would potentially inject very limited amount of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere to stabilize the present, uh, the Holocene, the, the interglacial. They could do it. They did it wisely, based on scientific evidence. The next ice age could have been delayed, but in a constructive way. So we are looking at the Earth now, and the Earth is lighted. It's lighted, and most of these lights are due to the burning of carbon dioxide of, uh, car of carbon, and which is changing extremely rapidly, changing the composition of the atmosphere. The implications in terms of agriculture and of civilization, the precise implications are not known. But the situation is such that um, people who make the decision, I believe, should take note. And with this last comment, I will just uh, give a reflection of the difficulties that any sane decisions are now facing. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.